revenge on the most evil people in history. And as I was doing that, I found myself to be just a little too self-conscious to use the word evil, so I changed the title of the episodes to the worst people in history. And then I kind of wondered why I was having such a hard time using the word evil. And so I reached the person who, as far as I can tell, may be one of the leading experts on the philosophical concept of evil in the entire world. How does that feel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's quite a compliment. (laughs) Dr. Todd Calder is the Associate Professor of Philosophy at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And you have published multiple papers, you've spoken at many symposia, and wrote the article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I consider the definitive resource on philosophy on the internet. So I would imagine that that probably has a broader reach than any other dictionary of philosophy that I'm aware of. Dr. Calder is uniquely qualified to speak to us about the concept of evil. So Dr. Calder, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. My first question for you is a broad question. Does evil exist? Well, I think unfortunately, uh, there are cases of evil uh, almost every day, and human history is filled with cases of evil. So I would say uh, definitely, yes, evil exists. But I think, though, when people ask that question, they worry that there might be something peculiar about the notion of evil, some sort of strange metaphysical suppositions that are being made when people use the term. And I just don't think that that's necessarily the case. I don't think that evil is a supernatural uh, concept or a essentially religious or theological concept. So I don't think that it necessarily refers to some sort of uh, dark force or something along those lines. I think that it's a moral concept, and it's a moral concept that picks out the morally worst sorts of action, characters, events, etc. And if we look at it that way, then uh, unfortunately we have to say that evil does exist. So that puts it squarely in the purview of ethical philosophy. When we say evil, what what usually it conjures up in my mind is some kind of uh, cosmic struggle between the forces of good, you know, God and all the angels, and the forces mm-hmm. of evil, Satan and all his demonic hordes. And yet that's not how the term is necessarily used today. That's right. I don't think that it is necessarily used that way. And I think part of the reason why people think of it that way is because there is this notion of duality between forces of evil, the realm of evil, and the realm of good comes from uh, Manichaean philosophy that was sort of prevalent around the time of uh, St. Augustine. And Augustine engaged with the Manichaean philosophy and ended up with uh, a different view after first accepting um, that uh, dual picture of good and evil. That picture is sort of prevalent in popular culture even today with Star Wars and that kind of thing. So people are naturally led that way. And then that's a very sort of metaphysical or supernatural kind of conception of evil. But I don't think that is the conception that we are using when we talk about evil in a moral, political, or legal context, or at least not necessarily. So what is evil if it's not a metaphysical concept? Well, I should um, make a distinction between two different concepts of evil. I think that sometimes when people use the term evil, and, and in particular in a religious or a theological context, they might just mean anything that's bad or wrong, or disvaluable. So a white lie is an evil, or a pinprick, or, you know, scratch on the back or a hand, any sort of pain or anything like that. Those are all evils. But that's sort of the broad concept of evil. I also think there's a narrow concept of evil that we more often use in contemporary moral and political 
contexts, and that narrow concept of evil refers to the morally most despicable sorts of actions and characters, things like that. So that, I think that's really what it is that we're talking about. And most of my work is actually on the narrow concept of evil rather than on the broad concept of evil, though I do engage with the theological conceptions of evil in a paper. But for the most part, I focus on the narrow concept of evil. When you study theodicy, they're trying to answer the question of how there can be moral evils and natural evils, like hurricanes, typhoons, floods, and so forth. Is that these two categories you're talking about? Not really, because when we talk about natural evils and moral evils, we could still be talking about evil in the uh, broad sense. So a moral evil is, is just an evil that's brought about by a, an agent, a moral agent, whereas natural evils are, are evils that are brought about not by the agency of people. So for instance, a hurricane could be an evil um, or pain is an evil that could be brought about through disease, etc. Those are all evils, natural evils, but moral evils are ones that are brought about by human beings such as theft or murder or but it could be something, you know, as benign as a as a white lie or something like that. But when I'm talking about the narrow conception of evil, I mean it, it is the moral evil, but it's also the morally worse sorts of actions, characters, etc. I guess what I would say is if it's uh we're talking about the actions of moral agents, then I would say that it's wrong. If we're talking about things that happen to people like the natural evils and things like that, I would call that bad. And I'd like to use the term evil exclusively for the narrow conception of evil, uh, just sort of to avoid some confusion that way. What led you to the dark side, I guess? What led you to want to study mm-hmm. evil and publish in the field of evil? I guess it was um, taking courses at the graduate level on theories of the good and ethics generally, and noticing that there didn't seem to be a lot written on evil, or at least the uh, the narrow conception of evil. There was a little bit, but not that much. So I decided to do a little bit of research into it and decided to write a PhD dissertation on that, on that concept. So I guess, and then I just uh, went from there. Seems like to me one of the more interesting, I don't want to say fun because that sounds a little macabre, but it does seem like a fascinating mm-hmm. area of study. Yeah, it's been surprising. It's, it's always surprised me that it's been such a neglected area of moral philosophy. There seems to be growing interest in the notion, but for a long time, there's just very, very little written and and said about it. And it just just seems kind of strange. Well, in your article, you talk about evil skeptics who want to abolish the use of the concept or even the whole idea of evil. And then there are evil revivalists. Can you explain what is meant by those two groups? Sure. This is terminology that was introduced by the Australian uh, philosopher Luke Russell in a paper in 2006, and uh, it did seem to capture um, a sort of uh, debate that had been kind of going on ever since some of us started writing about uh, this narrow conception of evil. That is that you had some people very much opposed to scholarly work on the notion of evil and also to the use of this term or the use of the concept in uh, moral, political, legal discussions. They were upset by journalists using it or politicians using the term. And I can see some reason why they would be, because sometimes the term is misused. But I think some very thoughtful people thought that we should really take it even further than that 
and not be using this this concept at all, right? So these are what Russell calls evil skeptics. The evil skeptic is somebody who thinks that the concept of evil is is an outdated concept. It's one that we should not use today. We should get rid of it. We should only talk about actions being wrong, people being bad. But once you use the term evil, then you're not really talking about anything. We shouldn't use the concept and we certainly shouldn't study it. Um, So that's the evil skeptic. On the other side, there's the evil revivalist, and I would sort of count myself as one, I guess, although I'm not no, if I'm completely happy with the term, I do fit the picture because I am someone who thinks that the concept of evil is useful and important and that more scholarly work needs to be done on it so we can get clearer about it rather than uh, abandon the concept. So for that reason, I would call myself an evil revivalist. Well, let's talk about the downside of using the concept of evil. I understand from your article that some people think it's just a useless concept. It doesn't have any explanatory power. Everything can be resolved into good and bad, and evil doesn't really add to the discussion. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think that the the real key scholar who, who pushes this kind of position is Philip Cole in a book called The Myth of Evil. Um, and he thinks that evil is uh, what he calls a black hole concept. So we use it when, we, when we, we don't know what to say, when we run out of explanation. So you have a, a terrible thing that happens, right? He, he mentioned the uh, kids, uh, Thompson and Venerables, I think it was, in, in England, who, who killed uh, Thomas Burgle on the uh, train tracks. And uh, at the time, the police and, and uh, others in England and the UK said, well, you know, this is obviously, there's no explanation for this. This is evil, right? Kids are evil. And so Cole sort of, you know, picks up on that and says, you know, that's exactly when the term evil is used. It's when we don't have an explanation. We just say it was evil, but it doesn't really provide an explanation, Cole says. It's it's a black hole concept. That's his idea. And he also seems to think that when we use the term evil, it's meant to provide a full explanation, a whole, you know, the whole thing. It's supposed to explain the entire event that occurred, and he thinks that it doesn't explain anything um, at all. But he doesn't hold other concepts to the same standard, so he doesn't say that we should get rid of wrong and bad because they don't provide a whole explanation, but he thinks that evil is supposed to do it, and it doesn't live up to what it's supposed to do, so we should get rid of it. Well, he's thinking of its folk usage, though, right? I mean, why did these bad people do these bad things? Because evil. But that's not a philosophical mm-hmm. use of the term that I think you would encounter, would you? I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that there's also, and he, he would be you know, uh, first to say this, he thinks that really when people use the term evil, that there is a connection to the supernatural sort of lurking in the background, that there's this necessary connection to the supernatural. And that gives some reason why it's something that we can't explain, because it's beyond explanation, it's supernatural. But I don't think, again, that is what we often mean when we use the term evil, and I don't think it's necessarily what we should mean if we're being clear-headed about what we mean. I think that ordinary human beings, unfortunately, can perpetrate evil actions, and they can become evil people. And that's an important thing to realize when you're doing moral philosophy. I think a lot of people still do think that there are supernatural implications when you say something's evil. It goes beyond just human behavior into the realm of this 
like you say, this Manichaean cosmic conflict, and you're fighting on the wrong side when you commit acts of evil. The way I think that the concept of evil is usefully used is in cases where the term wrong or bad just doesn't seem to cut it. You know, so what Hitler did was wrong. The Holocaust was bad. It's you not know, satisfying, uh, right? Is it? It's it's not. It just doesn't seem, you know, to cut it. I mean, and even if you say it was very, very bad, or he was very, very wrong uh, to do what he did. Some of these actions, you know, sadistic torture and genocide, you know, and some violent sexual assaults and things like that, just saying that they're wrong, bad, doesn't seem to quite cut it. So I think that this notion of evil is, is what kind of captures the moral significance of those kinds of actions. And it's it's there anyway. I mean, it's not like we can avoid those events or those actions, that they, they do occur. So we need to have a concept to be able to understand it and and understand how it affects us. So are you saying, uh, yeah. if I understand you right, you're saying you can't just intensify bad or wrong. But evil is qualitatively different in some way than just bad or wrong events? Or is it just that there's such power in the term that it suffices? Well, that's actually a, a controversial question. Uh, there is sort of a, a debate about whether evil is qualitatively distinct from wrongdoing or whether it's only quantitatively distinct from wrongdoing. And I mentioned Luke Russell before, the Australian philosopher. He argues that evil is only quantitatively different from uh, wrongdoing. So evil is just very wrong. But most philosophers who uh, write about evil disagree with Russell about that, and they think that there is a qualitative difference between um, evil and wrongdoing, and I'm, I'm one of those. So what is that quality? Can you nail it down? Well, now, as I said, most people who write about evil think that there is a qualitative difference, but they're not always clear about what it means for there to be a qualitative difference between evil and wrongdoing. Uh, many of them seem to suggest in their writing that what it takes for there to be a qualitative difference between evil and wrongdoing is that there needs to be some property that all evil actions uh, share and no merely wrongful action has. They would say something like Hillel Steiner says that evil actions are wrongful actions that are pleasurable to perform and that no merely wrongful action is pleasurable. If there's pleasure and wrong, then you get evil, according to Steiner. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the extra quality, right, in that case, that makes uh, a wrongful action an evil action. So there's the, the qualitative distinction there. And other people suggest that perhaps um, there has to be some other kind of motivation, such as you want to do wrong for its own sake or something along those lines. So that's one approach to making this distinction between qualitative difference between evil and wrongdoing and a mere quantitative difference is to find some kind of characteristic and claim that all evil actions have that characteristic and no merely wrongful action does. There's no elementary particle like an evil lawn that you can identify an evil action by? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because that that's be... where I was trying to go with my right. ideas of evil. I'm looking for the uh, evil yeah, lawn. See, that would...
the evil on, right? That would be great, you know. <laughs> um, but Russell, I think he thinks that it, you you can't just sort of say, well, evil actions are qualitatively different just because they are evil, and that's the quality, and that's kind of close to this idea of think of an evil on. <laughs> I think, on my view, what makes for a qualitative distinction between evil and wrongdoing is that evil actions have um, certain characteristics that are essential to those to that concept that is not shared by wrongdoing. So two concepts, this is true for any concept on my view, two concepts are qualitatively distinct, provided that they don't share all of their essential characteristics or properties. And I think that that's true of evil and wrongdoing, because I think that there are some characteristics that are essential for evil that may be shared by, to a lesser degree, by some wrongful actions, but it's not essential, right, for the concept of wrongdoing. So we really have to think about the concept of wrongdoing, the concept of evil, to be able to determine whether the difference between them is is merely quantitative or qualitative. So as I have been looking into some of the historical manifestations of evil that would be pretty uncontroversial, I think, people like Hitler or Nero, Vlad Tepe, Stalin... Uh, what's her name, Elizabeth Bathory, Pol Pot, some of these unanimously would characterize their actions as evil. And yet, as I look at them, they seem to be evil each in their own way. And yet we still, within our, I don't know if it's a visceral response, we know that they are evil. So do we account for that visceral response in theories about evil, or is that too subjective and culture-dependent? I think that we can. Uh, I mean, this is something that some philosophers think that that's really crucial, that that's really what we're trying to do. Stephen DeWitt at uh, the University of Manchester recently wrote an article that pushed that kind of view, and so does um, Eve Garrard and uh, David McNaughton in a paper as well. The idea that that's really what this is about is that we're trying to categorize uh, this visceral kind of reaction that we have to certain kinds of actions. And I suppose I'm okay with that because I think that you will, it does make sense of why we feel that way once you get clear about what is involved in an evil action as opposed to a merely wrongful action. But I guess the way I would characterize the project of doing this is really getting clear about these actions that are completely n- not something that that you can partake in, right? And the sort of person that you definitely don't want to be. So this is off limits, right? Uh, in a sense. So that's what we're kind of get clear about that kind of uh, moral category. And it's also sort of like you know, if you think about a spectrum, right, of moral you know, disvalue, you know, evil sort of at the far end of that sort of spectrum. We're kind of getting clear about some of the morally worst sorts of actions and characters. So I think of it more that way as as sort of doing moral theory about the, the the worst end of things rather than as trying to make sense of our visceral reactions to some of these people and the things that they've done although I think it it, it does a job it does that job as well. So what would be the difference between me calling an action evil or extremely taboo? Ah taboo. Well now Taboo is a different kind of notion as well, even from wrong. I mean, you might think that something's taboo, but it's merely a a cultural practice, right, that's being broken that makes it a taboo, whereas wrongness, we think, is, you know, goes beyond just a mere, you know, cultural perspective on something. So I'm not sure how to answer that question, given (laughs) that 
difference. <laughs> well, yeah. well, Bertrand Russell writes about the fact that in some cultures, nothing is considered more evil than eating out of the chief's bowl. And I don't know if he's right about that, but it's just his example. Yeah. And so to uh-huh. me, all he's saying is that that is, that to me sounds like a taboo. And yet he's right. saying that that's so subjective and so variable from culture to culture that evil essentially is just a term that we can readily apply to this or that, depending on the culture we're in. So how do you extend the reach of your definition of evil to be cross-cultural, if that's what you want to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I guess the way I see it is I'm trying to make sense of the concept of evil that that we typically use, say, in the West in contemporary kind of discussions about things like sadistic serial killers or terrorists, perhaps, or when we're talking about the Holocaust and things like that. Now, that's a concept that might not be something that people in other cultures or from other times really cared much about or had a term for. And I think that's okay. Now, you can use, of course, the term evil for lots of different things. And as I said at the beginning of our discussion, you can use it. It it certainly is used uh, to refer to a broad concept that means anything that's bad or wrong. But I'm interested in the narrow concept when it's used to refer to the narrow concept. That's what I mean by it. And we could try to come up with another term to make things, you know, clearer. But I don't know if that's really going to that's really going to work out. So now I, I do think that people in other cultures or from other times could recognize that there is this distinct category when it would be pointed out to them and say like, yeah, that you're right. That is the, the worst sort of stuff because, you know, the human condition I don't think has changed that much over time and is pretty constant across cultures in various respects. So when, when you really get down to narrow in on what evil is, then I think most people would agree that it is sort of the morally worse sorts of stuff, but but maybe not. I mean, you know, there could be a you know peculiarity, and they're like, well, I just don't care about that stuff. Well, then fine. Then we're not talking about the same thing. Yeah, you know, that brings up an important question in my mind. Is it possible if you're a hard determinist, and by that what I mean is somebody who believes that our actions are determined, they're not freely chosen, there are biochemical or environmental factors that make it so that we couldn't do other than what we do. Is it possible to talk about evil in that setting? Because there are many scientists who are basically hard determinists, and they seem to be all for getting rid of the concept of evil. I mean, I'm not a hard determinist myself, so uh, it makes it maybe a little more difficult for me to answer the question. Um, But um, I guess... I think that let's say even if there isn't free will that people aren't aren't free in the sense that we that we might think that they are we might still be able to make sense of the notion of evil I might be able to sort of answer this question um perhaps by thinking about the sort of person who might perpetrate an action that we would call evil that we might think has been sort of determined by, say, his genetic makeup or his environment or something like that. So we can picture somebody who maybe had psychopathy in his family, so perhaps maybe he he is a psychopath or tends toward the high end of the the spectrum where he's at least close to being a psychopath, perhaps, impulsive, lacking in empathy, that sort of thing. And then, you know, he has a comes from a rough neighborhood, 
perhaps has a bad upbringing, alcoholic parents, something along those lines. And then he ends up, you know, doing some pretty terrible things, right? Uh, torturing cats, torturing people, you know, brutal muggings, murder, etc. I think we can still make sense of calling that person an evil person and the actions that that he performs evil actions. I think that that what he does would still fit it because what he's doing is something that he knows that <laughs> he's causing all this harm and and he just doesn't care about it. And the fact that he doesn't care, I don't think that that makes his action not evil or him a better person. Okay, so if I were doing my podcast and I was talking about an event that was perpetrated by a person, by an agent, and I wanted to call that event evil, what type of event in your mind could we accurately characterize as evil? Sure, yeah. I mean, so here's my here's my view um, of evil action. I think that there's got to be... Um, several different components for an action to be evil. There's a harm component, a motivation component, there's got to be a belief component, and there has to be a relational component. And so here's how I would put it all together. In order to perform an evil action, someone must cause or allow significant harm for an unworthy goal, believe that that is what they're doing, or be responsible for their ignorance, and be in a sufficiently close relationship with their victim. So that's a whole lot of stuff to unpack, but that's that's what I would say. So, for example, if a person commits an evil action, but doesn't know they're causing this tremendous harm, but they could know just by doing a little bit of soul-searching, they're still committing an evil action. That's right, exactly. Because what they are doing is... They may not believe that they're causing significant harm, right? Or they may believe that they might be causing significant harm, but for a worthy goal. But that's because they're avoiding evidence that is, you know, that's available to them that would show them that the the contrary is in fact true. So I call those sorts of evildoers, and they are by far the the most uh, most evildoers are of that sort, uh, self-deceptive evildoers. Right, because they're they're acting under self-deception, and my understanding of self-deception is just the idea that that somebody avoids acknowledging some truth or what they would see as truth if they if they look squarely at the available evidence. You know, it's so interesting because we've been talking about the Great Leap Forward in China when Mao instituted all these policies. Millions of people were dying, yet nobody dared to tell him what a disaster his program was. And he didn't seem to have the self-reflective ability to even look into all the deaths that he was causing. And yet this doesn't absolve him of the evil of his actions, because he could have known if he had cared to look. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. If you look at Hitler as well, or many of his most famous um, functionaries like Adolf Eichmann, I, I think that the, their evil doing is of the same sort, that, that, is, that they were deceiving themselves about the value of what they were doing you know, Hitler's view that uh, exterminating the Jews was something that was necessary to save uh, Europe and, and Germany in particular from the evil scourge 
right, of the juices, you know, this was something that he convinced himself of because he couldn't accept his own failures and the failures of, of his adopted country, Germany. And so he had this long project of uh, self-deception, looking at pamphlets that, you know, weren't based in fact at all, that were saying all these lies about uh, Jews. And, and, you know, he was believing them and, and pushing away the fact that he actually did know Jews had, uh, you know, at least uh, some uh, Jewish acquaintances, maybe perhaps even some Jewish friends to some degree. There was a particular art dealer that uh, he was quite friendly with. And there's no way that he could think that they were utterly unlike other people in morally significant respects, but that's what he wanted to believe. So in the end, perhaps he did to some degree, but that's because he convinced himself of that. It was his project of self-deception that led him there. So you mentioned Eichmann, and that brings up for me um, the work of Hannah Arendt on mm-hmm. Eichmann in Jerusalem. Where she Is that where the... T- uh, the term was first coined, the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. And That's I see right, that yeah. you've written a paper on the banality of evil. Can you explain that? Or is that just going in down a rabbit hole that will take too long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk a bit about that. I mean, it's uh, certainly, you know, the most controversial sort of statement she made. You know, it's, it's part of the subtitle of her book, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And she does mention the banality of evil uh, once in the book, I believe, and at other times in other papers later on, trying to defend herself from people who thought that uh, this was outrageous, that she was calling evil um, banal and, and the Nazis banal. Yeah, I, I think that uh, she was definitely on to something uh, there. Because, of course, the Holocaust was a terrible, terrible tragedy, like one of the worst, you know, moral disasters from history. And it was really perpetrated by a lot of people who were ordinary in some sense, but living in extraordinary times, perhaps. But the people themselves, I mean, and the way that I sort of interpret what Arendt's talking about is that Eichmann himself was not a moral monster. Although since Arendt wrote that, um, some people have kind of questioned her on that and have brought up parts of Eichmann's past that suggest he was more anti-Semitic than she suggests that he was. But he clearly wasn't, I think, what you might expect for somebody who was sending six million people to their death in this sort of terrible way. But yeah, um, you know, I think it's a great example, though, of uh, somebody who was self-deceptive evildoer. He just didn't want to think about it. He was doing well. Finally, he was, he had this great career. I mean, before he was a salesman and, you know, his life was fairly mediocre and um, he joined the Nazi party and, you know, became promoted and and quite successful and very good at what he did and uh, didn't really want to think about the, you know, the moral implications of what he did and was happy to let uh, what he would call his betters, Hitler and, and the other, you know, hires up in the in the Nazi party. It was up to them to figure out whether this was right or wrong. And he was just going to kind of do his job and not think about it. And that, that's that's a key uh, approach to or, or way of being self-deceptive is to just sort of avoid thinking about things that would reveal the, the horrible truth of what you're doing. And in this paper about the banality of evil that you wrote, you distinguish between what you call a moral idiot and a moral monster. 
Can you tell me what you mean by each of those? Well, because um, well, when I think of a moral idiot, I would think of somebody who lacks the ability to distinguish between good and bad. But I don't think that's how you were using the term. Yeah, I think that, that the moral monster is somebody who who is perhaps sadistic or sort of knowingly wants other people to suffer, you know, or acknowledges that other people are suffering for no good reason, right? So if you go back to my theory of, of evil, I think that um, a key component to it is that they cause or allow significant harm for an unworthy goal, right? So it's just, you know, they're getting what out of it? Like entertainment, career advancement, maybe wealth or, or something like that, you know, power, enjoyment, and and they just don't care that someone else is is suffering so terribly, the moral monster can do that straight up, whereas the the moral idiot or the self-deceptive evildoer uh, is somebody who needs to hide themselves from the truth of what it is that they're doing. So you can think about well, one case that I, I think about sometimes rather than the Nazi case. With the Nazis, you have uh, people who recognize that they're causing some people a lot of harm, right? I mean, they certainly knew that the Jews were suffering and and being killed at their hands, but they thought that it was for a good cause, right? Or at least that's what they that's what they convinced themselves of. That it was for a good cause that they were getting rid of this terrible race of people. That some of them really thought that. Like Himmler was apparently, you know, had a hard time sort of stomaching, you know, the uh, the things that he had to do. But you know, that was part of the the, the propaganda. It was like, look, this we need to do this because this is like for Germany, and you know, you've got to kind of toughen up. But another sort of uh, self-deceptive evil that we could think of is, is child molester, the, someone who perpetrates you know, sexual assault on young people. Right? It's not that they think that what they're doing is for such a great cause, but they don't maybe perhaps don't think that they're causing that much harm, or they might convince themselves of that. So they can deceive themselves about the harm that they're causing rather than the worthiness of the goal for which they're, they're doing it. And so I think that's another good example of a self-deceptive evildoer. Some people seem to imply that to be an evil character, you'd have to have no redeeming value. So the fact that Elizabeth Bathory was a wonderful mother, or that Mussolini made the trains run on time, they would not be qualified as evil people because they had these good qualities. Whereas other people say, no, you can be an evil person and have an evil disposition or character and still have redeeming value. So where do you come down on that? Daniel Hebron has argued in favor of that uh, the view that there can't be any redeeming value that and he he calls this his uh, consistency thesis which he thinks is sort of like a, a necessary part of the notion of evil personhood is this idea that the evil person has no good side no morally good side no significant motives or feelings that have any moral worth that's what it and he thinks that that's not just necessary, but sufficient for being an evil um, person, that you just need to have absolutely no good side. So by that criteria, who's evil? Right. Well, (laughs) it's a good question. And he sort of acknowledges in one paper that, uh, you know, it's possible that, you know, 
I'm this is just a theoretical point, and maybe there's no one who really is evil. And in the, in the the other thing he says in response to the, your question about whether anyone is evil is that um, well, you know, they, if if it's if if Hitler perhaps loved his dogs, that wouldn't be enough because it's not you know not morally significant enough, right? So uh, there's there's no real you know they don't have anything that's really morally like redeeming about them or their or their actions. So that's the way he would kind of uh, handle that kind of a question, I think. But again, it seems like you're stuck in saying, well, how much moral significance does your goodness mm-hmm. have to have? And, and how do you quantify that, you know, for that theory yeah. to hold? Yeah, I agree. And I, and I just, I, re- I reject it sort of outright myself, because I think that people can compartmentalize more than Hebron is admitting, right? I think that you can have some people who are pretty terrible people. And it's not that they'll, they've always been terrible people and that they could never be better, but, uh, and it might be social and political circumstances that have led them there, but on a daily basis, they um, are performing evil actions, right? They're causing or allowing significant harm for an unworthy goal, and they know that that's what they're doing, or they are self-deceptive, and they're they're physically close enough to these people that they're doing it for it to count as evil. And you know, so great examples would be people in the in the Nazi Party who were performing the killings or working in the camps, the death camps, etc., and then you know going home to their their wife and children, and you know being like if not like a great person, but like you know maybe a more or less decent father and husband. So I just don't think that that evil people need to be so consistently bad as Hebron lets on. I mean, there might be some that are like that, but I just think that the class of evil persons is broader than Hebron's letting on. I mean, he's even, it seems like he's talking, and I think sometimes um, he might mean this, that the evil person is uh, equated really with a psychopath, like or an extreme form of of psychopath where there's absolutely no empathy or uh, desire to do what's morally correct. Um, I just think the class of evil people is is, is broader than that. You yeah. say in this paper <laughs> that there is a special class of moral idiots who have a consistent propensity for e-desires. That's they have a consistent evil desire set, mm-hmm. but their belief that their goal justifies their victim's harm is defensible. So they're not evil. If somebody commits evil acts for reasons that at least seem semi-reasonable or defensible, you would say that's not an evil character. I would, I would, I would agree with that. And so what I have in mind is this. It sort of goes back to the self-deceptive evil that we were talking about earlier. Sometimes you might be ignorant that you're causing significant harm for an unworthy goal, and you might not be culpable. It might be because you do have a defensible reason for your belief that that's not what you're doing. So for instance, if you've been raised to think that a certain group of people are all malicious and that they're out to get people from your group and you've never had any contact with them, you have never re- don't have any reason to believe that you're given any false information about this, then perhaps, you know, we might be defensible to think that that pe- those people are like that and that you should do whatever you can to defend yourself. But I think that for the most part, that's not the case in in very many cases, right? I mean, you know, 
we uh, in, in Germany, for instance, you know, the Germans and the Jews sort of lived together, and and you know they they knew each other and that kind of thing. So, uh, so I think it would be indefensible belief to think that the Jews were uh, utterly unlike Germans. Um, but it's conceivable that there could be, you know people that were like that. For instance, uh, you know, we don't know anything about aliens. We don't have any contact with aliens. And then if there was a news reports about aliens and there were, we were taught about aliens in school, let's say, you know, starting in grade one, and like, well, this is what aliens are like. They're sort of bloodthirsty, you know, vampires from another planet and they do all this stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden some spaceship crashes in a field and we go up and do terrible things to these people you know we would that would be a case where we'd be justified perhaps right because we would have a defensible reason we wouldn't have any reason to believe that they weren't other than how we've been told that brings to mind something that i don't know have you seen avengers infinity war no i haven't okay so there's a character there named thanos and he is motivated by the fact that he thinks the entire universe is becoming overpopulated and he believes that that's responsible for all of the scarcity and the want and, and all of the ills that that causes. So his goal and his motivation is to wipe out half of the population of the universe of sentient creatures. And it just brings to mind what you're talking about. Whether or not what he did was evil would depend um, in a large part in your mind on whether that goal was defensible, whether a rational mm. person could see that as a worthy goal. Yeah, whether given, you know, all the evidence that was available sort of to him, right, it was reasonable for him to think that he was going to make things better overall. And, you know, there can be cases that are, are tricky, but I think if you're going to kill a whole pile of people, you better think long and hard about it and <laughs> not jump the gun, right? You know, <laughs> Practical wisdom that we're... <laughs> right? That's right? what we're looking for. If you're going to kill a whole pile of people, you got to think about it first. And I, think uh... <laughs> about it <laughs> very deeply. Yeah, you... What I thought might be, instead of uh, digging into specific criteria in depth, which could bore my listeners to death, even though I love talking about it. Um, I thought I might yeah. ask you just a few questions and just get your thoughts on these questions. Can you do evil when you're trying to do the right thing? I think that you could, but again, I think it's, it's, it keeps coming back to the, the whole self-deceptive evildoer sorts of uh, thing, because do you think that you're doing the right thing because you want to think that this is the right thing? Have you convinced yourself that this is the right thing? Have you looked at evidence that might suggest that it's not the right thing? But I think it is possible to do the, something that is conceivably the right thing on, on some views about what's right and wrong, and it, for it still to be evil. One example that comes to my mind is mm -hmm. a parent who is told by a fundamentalist religious group that they need to shun their gay child. This is real life. People do this. And we would say that that is an evil act to shun a child, mm -hmm. at least yeah. a very morally wrong thing to do. But they yeah. think they're doing the right thing. I think that if you have all the reason in the world to think that what you're doing is for a worthy goal, or that you're not causing significant harm, then I think that you aren't performing an evil action. But in the case that you just mentioned, I don't know if that's right. I mean, you've really got to think about, you, you've got to know 
have some idea of what that's going to do to the child to completely shun them like that. You've got to think about the, the value of this group that is asking you to do that. Why are you feeling that you need to be strongly associated with this group? Is it your own insecurities that are driving it? So I think that some soul-searching there might reveal that really the reason why you're doing this and following the group and shunning your your child, which is a terrible thing, is because you feel that you need to feel connected to this group and you need to feel that 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 this is the right thing. And so you've convinced yourself that it's the right thing to do when you don't really have good reason ultimately to believe that. And when you're going to do something that is going to cause this much harm to somebody, you can't just make that kind of a judgment lightly. Okay. Can an action be morally right and yet result in evil? So I think that it can, and I'm probably one of the only people who think something like this, Um, but it really does depend on what you mean by a right action. So I have this paper, evil isn't necessarily wrong, something like that, and I give a case where I think that We have an action that is right on some very plausible theories of right and wrong, but also evil. So let me give you the case. Uh, Imagine that A is the uh, sort of chairperson of the board, let's say, for this charity organization called Good Deeds. So A is in a position where A can hire somebody to be the president uh, of Good Deeds, And there are two applicants. There's uh, B and C. B is very highly qualified for this job, has been working um, her whole life to to get this job, and is, uh, you know, a, a top candidate for the job. And A knows this. A also knows that if B doesn't get the job, she'll be devastated and will suffer a severe depression. C, um is also highly qualified uh, for the job, just as qualified as B is, and and A knows this, but A also knows that A uh, C won't uh, suffer uh, depression if she doesn't get the job. However, things are such that C, if C gets the job, then there's going to be a lot more donations uh, to the charity uh, Good Deeds because C's a celebrity. And so a lot more money is going to come in, and the money that they get from additional donations would be enough to more than offset the suffering that B is going to occur from not getting the job. So A knows this, right? A knows, look, hire C, and we get an equally well-qualified person, and we're going to get all this additional money, and we're going to be able to do all these really great things. We're going to save a lot of people a lot of suffering around the world. Um, from the money that we'll have. So it seems that, you know, given some very plausible theories of right and wrong, the right thing to do in this situation is for A to hire C rather than B. But I also think that this action could be evil because A might hire C rather than B, not so that she can, like, save a lot of people suffering, not so that she's doing the right thing, but instead so that she can take pleasure in B's suffering. So if that's the only reason why A hires C, that is to take pleasure in 
the suffering that B is going to incur, then I think that what she does is an evil action, even though it's right on, on many plausible theories of right and wrong. In particular, I'm thinking about, of course, consequentialist uh, theories of right and wrong. So under strictly consequentialist theories, there can't be evil if there is no harm. Is that correct? Yeah, if, if, if on balance, there's more good than bad, right? Or more you know, pleasure than harm, then the consequentialist is going to say that it's the right thing to do. Do you think there can be evil even when no harm accrues? Yeah, I think that that would be a case where you would have an evil action where, well, there's harm involved. It's not that there can't be any harm, but I think that you could have an evil action where there's more good than harm as long as that's not the reason why the action is committed, right? So in this case, what what I call malicious hirer, we have an action that there is some harm involved. So, yeah, I think that what A does is an evil action, even though I think it's very plausible to say that what A does is right and therefore not wrong. So, and I use that case to argue for the position that evil actions aren't necessarily wrong, which is a pretty controversial position. So, what about an evil, can you have an evil action, say a thwarted intention? So you want to assassinate a beloved world leader, you aim the gun, you pull the trigger and it misfires. Is that an evil act or because no harm accrued, is it not evil? Yeah, some people like Luke Russell, who I mentioned earlier, um, believes that in those cases where someone attempts to bring about a lot of harm and they they fail, then we should say that that is, is an evil action because you know they have the same intention, etc. I've got a different view about that. I, I think that um, you do need to have a victim. Um, there does need to be harm in order for there to be an evil action. But I would say about um, that kind of case is that there was an attempt made to perform an evil action, but it was a failed attempt. So I think we should be able to make sense of failed attempts at evil. Each of us kind of has this visceral repulsion to people who would sit in a dark room watching snuff films or torture films. And yet that person could argue that they're not causing any harm. The the action has already mm. occurred. They're just enjoying watching it. Is that yeah. evil? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, and there's a few things I can say about it. One is that I, I'm sort of on the fence a little bit about those cases, um, cases of witnessing harm rather than causing or allowing harm. I think that I, I feel pretty secure with my, my view about evil in saying that, you know, in cases of causing or allowing harm um, in, in the, the way that I've suggested, though those are cases of evil. But when it comes to witnessing harm, it's not as clear that it's an evil action. I certainly think that there would have, have to be pleasure involved as well. So there'd have to be like an effective component. That is, there'd have to be a certain feeling that would go along with it to make it an evil action. Another approach, though, is to say that what we have there is an evil person, but not an evil action. And I, I would say that that's also true of the failed attempts as well, that when somebody uh, attempts to perform an evil action but fails, the, the gun misfires or the bomb doesn't go off, etc., that um, we don't have an evil action, but their failed attempt doesn't make them a better person. So you might have the you know that queasy feeling. It's the feeling like, well, there's something evil about this, right? Well, what might be evil is the person and not their action. 
So that might be a way to answer those questions. But That's fascinating because it brings up exactly my next question, which is, uh, can you have an evil person who never does anything evil? Oh, yes, I, I think you can, because you could have a person who is the, the morally worst kind of person and would love to you know, perform evil actions and perhaps is fantasizing about it all the time, but it's too cowardly or maybe incompetent or maybe a bit of both. And in- cowardice and incompetence don't make our characters any better. So I, I think you could clearly have somebody who uh, never actually performed an evil action but was still the morally worst sort of person that is an evil character. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for this long discussion. You've been very patient explaining all this to me. I really appreciate it. So after this long discussion, what is evil and how do we account for its presence? Okay, well, in my view, um, evil and evil action consists in causing or allowing significant harm for an unworthy goal while believing that that's what you're doing or being responsible for your ignorance and being sufficiently closely related to the to the victim. So that's that's what I take evil to be and an evil person is somebody who has the motivation or sort of the desire to cause or allow significant harm for an unworthy goal when they're in that kind of a relationship um, with their victim. What was the other question you had? How do we account for its presence? We account for its presence because unfortunately human beings are capable of performing those actions and becoming those sorts of people. And I think that this is one of the important aspects about getting clear about evil is that it isn't something supernatural and it is something very, very human that we all have the capability of falling into. And we need to be vigilant with ourselves to make sure that we're not going down the path of evil, performing evil actions, becoming that sort of person. Because I think that under certain circumstances, most of us could become evil people. It sounds like to you, evil is an adjective more than a proper noun. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. You can say that an action is evil. So it has that that quality, or you could say that a person is evil, that they have that kind of kind of quality. I don't think of it as, uh, it's not like a, a substance itself or some kind of force, because that's when we start getting into supernatural kind of conception of evil. And I think that most people in a secular context want to reject that kind of conception. So and it right doesn't so. have a capital E. It's not evil in that way. That's right. Yeah. The last question that I usually ask in every interview is always the same. Who are we? We are uh, people that uh, are capable of evil and need to be careful that we uh, don't go down the, the dark side. I guess that's essentially who we are.